That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Dr. Will Cole, leading functional medicine expert and best-selling author. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up, everybody? It's Dr. Will Cole, and welcome to The Art of Being Well. I am a functional medicine practitioner. I get to consult people around the world via webcam. I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago. So that's my main focus. I love getting to the root cause. I love running labs and figuring out objectively from the data, what are the underlying confluence of factors that are giving rise to different health issues? I deal mostly with people with different inflammatory problems, whether that be autoimmune inflammatory or non-autoimmune inflammatory issues that are impacting people's hormones, impacting people's digestion, impacting people's brain with anxiety and depression and fatigue, or typically, again, a combination of these problems. Those are my people. Those are the people that I know, hey, if we figure out what's going on, if we figure out the impediments that are keeping them back from living the life they were created for, we can start moving the needle in a positive direction. So certainly... I get beyond the basic stuff. These are not easy, quick fix cases, but they're cases that are sacred to me. And it's truly an honor to be a part of the health journey. I've written a few books about these things as well. Ketotarian is my first book. It's a clean ketogenic way of eating to use food as nutrition to clinically support brain function and become uh, more metabolically flexible. And then my newest book is called Intuitive Fasting which is kind of a, a deeper dive into that concept as well, to, to how to use flexible intermittent fasting to lower inflammation levels, to become more metabolically flexible, to find what I call in the book food peace, to have this resolute knowingness of this makes me feel good, this makes me feel really lousy, and having the clarity and intuition to know the difference. And then my second book, which I just missed talking about, it, it's called The Inflammation Spectrum, which is about this stuff as well. You can geek out on all the stuff if you want, guys. It's all the information's at drwillcole.com, D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com for information about my telehealth clinic, the books, and there's lots of free content for you to geek out for hours on end. It's like Netflix, only way smarter. Uh, anyways, let's get to today's guest. That's no shame or shade on a Netflix. I love Netflix. I'm just joking. Um, all right, let's get to today's guest. She is an awesome friend of mine and she's freaking brilliant. Her name's Phoebe Lapine. She is a food and health writer, 
gluten-free chef, wellness expert, culinary instructor, Hashimoto's advocate and speaker. She was born and raised in New York City, where she continues to live and eat. On her award-winning blog, Feed Me Phoebe, she shares recipes for healthy comfort food and insights about balanced lifestyle choices beyond what's on your plate. She was named by Women's Health Magazine as the top nutrition read of 2017, Phoebe's best-selling debut memoir, The Wellness Project, chronicles her journey with Hashimoto's thyroiditis and how she finally found the middle ground between health and hedonism by making one lifestyle change one month at a time. And her newest book is freaking amazing. It's called SIBO Made Simple. I, yours truly, wrote the foreword of the book. Thank you very much. The book is so amazing. SIBO cases are one of the top cases that I see clinically. Uh, Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We are going to talk all things gut health today, my friends. We're talking about Phoebe's health journey and her inspiration for her newest book, SIBO Made Simple. We talk about what SIBO is exactly and how it affects our digestive system. We talk about the link between SIBO and different autoimmune diseases. We talk about the specific labs to help diagnose the different types of SIBO. We talk about those different various types of SIBO and the different treatments for the different kinds of SIBO and other gut issues. We talk about FODMAPs, the other funny acronym that we like to say in functional medicine and what FODMAPs are and how they affect your health and how they can have effect on SIBO. And we talk about Phoebe's favorite recipes and culinary tips while navigating SIBO and supporting your gut health. So let's get to today's amazing guest, Phoebe Lapine. Phoebe, how the heck are you? I'm good. (laughs) I'm trying to like keep my head above water in preparation for this book launch and all this new year, new you craziness that happens every January. But you know what? I'm so thrilled to be here talking to you. Yeah, I am so honored to be talking to you about this project. And I've dog-eared so many aspects of this book uh, for our conversation today. And of course, I'm like a walking cliche. I have a piece of selenite as a bookmark. (laughs) (laughs) It was on my desk and I just used it because I I wanted to talk about some things uh, specific in the book. But let's talk about it. SIBO Made Simple. How did the book come come about? Uh, Well, kind of like everything I do. It all stems from my own personal struggles and experience. Um, So a few years ago, I wrote a book called The Wellness Project, which was all about how I was kind of trying to deal with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And it was kind of like the anti-doctor book because I really wanted to give people tons of information, but to sandwich it into memoir and really give the perspective of someone, you know, in their mid twenties, who's trying to make all of this holistic health stuff work on a limited budget with limited time and just, you know, trying to, to frame the overwhelm that a lot of people feel. So anyway, I ended up really feeling great on the other side of my little project, which involves a lot of monthly changes, kind of taking things one step at a time. And by the end of it, I really thought I knew everything there was to know about gut health. I (laughs) felt like an expert. I felt like things were, you know, chugging all cylinders finally. And then about like seven months after the book came out, as I was like taking a breath after that book tour, you know, I started to like tune in to the fact that a lot of unfortunate symptoms were starting to crop up again. I was 
burping during every meal and feeling super bloated and, you know, and kind of the roller coaster of constipation, diarrhea. And eventually I went to go see my functional medicine doctor and got the diagnosis of SIBO, which is something I'd heard of kind of in passing, but never really drilled into. And the irony of course, is that I was following all of my gut sensei's advice. So I was, you know, crushing kombucha and fermented foods and beans and inulin rich vegetables. And I thought I was doing everything right. And I was just making myself more and more miserable. So once I got the diagnosis, I kind of fell down this rabbit hole, the the internet rabbit hole. And, you know, there's there's not a ton out there on SIBO. There is more so now than two years ago when I was dealing with this, or I guess it was three years ago now. And I just ended up kind of doing my own research as I do, and then writing a few posts about it as I do on my website, since I've been a blogger for, for a while. And it was kind of wild. Those three posts just like went bananas with people who are already followers of mine who had a raging case of SIBO already. And then others who are just finding on the internet and was like, thank you for kind of like breaking it down into like these easily digestible terms, pardon the pun. (laughs) And so I kind of, it was more just like a light bulb for me. Like I'm always looking to help people. So I was like, oh, wow. Like people really need more concrete resources on SIBO. It's such a Mm -hmm. complex condition to tackle for medical professionals like yourself and for certainly people who don't necessarily have the help they need. Mm -hmm. So I ended up starting a podcast called SIBO Made Simple just to like really dig into what the latest research was and how practitioners were were tackling it in their practices since, you know, there's still so much that's unknown from a data standpoint. So it's a lot of, you know, clinicians like yourself who are leading the way in terms of what works and what doesn't. And it was supposed to be just a 12 episode podcast. Like you get diagnosed and you listen to these 12 episodes and you're on your way. And then of course it dovetailed into, I think we're almost on episode 50 now. And I'm finally going to set it to rest with this book, but it's been such an incredible learning experience. And I realized that I knew nothing about gut health compared to what I know now. And the amazing thing about SIBO is that it's really just like, this nexus of so many different conditions. So I feel like I've learned a lot more about specific autoimmune conditions and just like inflammatory conditions. And I don't know, just Mm -hmm. a lot of different sides of the wellness equation. Yeah, very well said. It is It is a beautiful book. It is an informative book. It's a helpful book. And I was honored, seriously, it's probably the highlight of my year last year or the year before, whenever I wrote it, is you asking me to write the forward of the book. Oh my gosh. I mean, so, I'm I honored it. that you would even say that. That's like it's crazy true. to me as a, as a lay person, a technical lay person. Oh my goodness. <laughs> no, I mean, I love writing and I love writing about this topic of this book. So to be able to contribute in a small, small, small way of writing the forward of SIBO Made Simple was truly exciting to, to write. I wrote it on a plane, I think somewhere. And I, and I, I remember I have like a, of like a visual memory of where I write things. And I, I, I enjoyed I writing that. Amazing. Well, we're so happy to have it as part of this project. My editor was like so psyched to get you. You're a big get, Will. Oh, wow. <laughs> Little old me. I would, yeah. I, I don't, I just, I'm just me. But anyways, you're absolutely right. SIBO is something that I see clinically all the time. So I was excited to put that in like something that I have such a passion to help people overcome in the book. Uh, and write about it because it's something that's, it's such a silent problem. People don't, people are left to fend for themselves. And they're, like you said, this endless vortex of Dr. Google, like what the heck? 
And as I said in the book, it's absolutely true. I said, the book you are now holding is a priceless practical roadmap for all your SIBO questions. Finally, SIBO made simple. I think it's a great resource. But let's back up a little bit because there's probably some people that are joining in and like, what the heck SIBO? So can you tell everybody about that? Sure. So it stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And it's really kind of an issue of location, not necessarily type, although quote unquote bad bacteria does factor in sometimes to both the risk factors and what's actually overgrowing. But it's really not like a disease in and of itself. You kind of have to have several things go wrong in the mechanics of your digestive system to develop SIBO. And oftentimes there are a lot of things going wrong, like a whole host of risk factors and concurrent conditions that can contribute to it. And, you know, it's funny because rewind to, you know, five years ago or whenever I was writing my first book, I started to hear about the low FODMAP diet and I didn't really understand it. I was like, this diet is literally the opposite of what every single microbiome specialist tells you to eat to foster good gut bacteria. And so when I learned about SIBO, I was like, oh my God, it makes complete sense why this diet would be helpful for people with IBS because most people with IBS really have SIBO as kind of the underlying issue of what's causing those symptoms. And so if you have bacteria in your small intestine where they're really not supposed to be, and I think that's another kind of failure of the wellness world is just kind of conflating like gut bacteria, quote unquote, with, I mean, it really just means your large intestine, like Mm-hmm. gut microbiome, not necessarily the entire gut. So I didn't really understand that like, you're really not supposed to have very many bacteria in your small intestine. And the reason for that is of course, cause it's where you're absorbing your nutrients. So when they're bacteria, there, fighting for those resources and they eat some of their favorite foods, which are, you know, a lot of the ingredients I mentioned that I was crushing in the fall of whatever it was, 2017, then they release gas. And since it's, you know, so far up in the digestive tract, that gas has nowhere to go, which is why burping, I think, is a very interesting SIBO-specific symptom because, of course, it's finding an exit ramp one way or the other. And um, for me, it was the burping <laughs> where it was going. Um, but also, you know, just the bloating that you get with SIBO, it's it's really far up there. It's not like for, for ladies what you might feel when you get your period. It's like kind of a hard inner tube. I know a lot of doctors on the podcast describe it as like an inner tube under the abdomen. And yeah, and just having the gas there in that area where it's not designed to be, it can cause so many problems downstream. So leaky gut and, you know, food sensitivities off the back of that. And just like a ton of inflammation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, for people, let's unpack some of that stuff there because what Phoebe just said, and it's absolutely true, People that are struggling with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, people that have chronic constipation, people that have looser stools. And look, there's this IBS spectrum too, where people don't even know they have IBS because, I mean, let's, can we talk about that? Like, what are the various (laughs) spectrum of issues that people, what are some telltale signs that SIBO could be an issue and maybe they should run labs and find out? What's going on? Yeah. So like the the four symptoms of IBS, bloating, gas, constipation, diarrhea. But then with SIBO, it's like, it's so much more insidious because of all that inflammation. So again, like leaky gut, food sensitivities, brain fog. I mean, it's really, it causes kind of this like cycle of dysfunction in the Mm -hmm. gut. A lot of people have weight gain or weight loss, depending on which bugs are overgrowing. If you have methane, methanogens, then it's going to be weight gain just because of the way those bugs metabolize energy 
energy and your food. And then for a lot of people with hydrogen and just people who have just have such a damaged gut as a result of SIBO are going to have weight loss because you're just not processing both like the food Mm -hmm. itself or absorbing the nutrients, even if you are able to break it down. Yeah, absolutely. And I I would add to this too, and I've seen many cases, people with indigestion, acid reflux as well, that are driven at least in part, if not entirely from SIBO. There's also research to show, and I've definitely seen this a lot over the years, is this autoimmune connection Mm -hmm. with SIBO. And some researchers even consider this to having autoimmune components in and of itself, but it's definitely associated with things like Hashimoto's disease, autoimmune thyroid problems, and other autoimmune problems. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think that's a really interesting relationship. And, you know, there are a lot of people who, you know, focus on SIBO still say, you know, we don't really know the why. Um, But then you look at the list of these concurrent conditions and they're all autoimmune diseases. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's something really interesting there. The one thing that is validated is one of the main reasons why people get SIBO is because of just a simple case of food poisoning. Mm -hmm. And for about 10% of people, it doesn't end up being so simple. There's kind of an autoimmune component to that food poisoning to when your immune system gets called to arms and starts to fight these pathogens that damages the street sweeper wave of our intestines. And that's called the migrating motor complex. Again, another term I never knew five years ago, but is so important in the world of SIBO because the breakdown of that function is why for a lot of people, bacteria can overgrow. So with the food poisoning people, you could just develop SIBO because of the fog of war, what's going on in there to begin with. But then again, 10% of people will kind of develop this ongoing autoimmune reaction that doesn't go away so easily. And it becomes kind of a chronic problem. Mm -hmm. But to me, like learning about that, I was like, okay, well, if your immune system is, you know, going to cause so much dysfunction for your motility, for the migrating motor complex, what about people with all these autoimmune diseases who already have leaky gut and food sensitivities and they're mm-hmm. eating these ingredients every single day that maybe like don't call as big an army <laughs> to arms as, you know, a crazy, you know, bout of food poisoning, but you know, you're eating that ingredient day in and day out, like that's got to cause some issues for your motility down the line. So Mm -hmm. I do think that SIBO and autoimmune diseases are a two-way street in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. And then of course, SIBO contributes to autoimmune diseases through that leaky gut connection. And, Mm -hmm. you know, by having the bacteria damage the mucus lining and the tight junctions and allowing both, you know, particles of food and the bacteria themselves to leak out into the body. And that's why I think you see like so many overlapping conditions like MCAS and I don't know, like histamine issues. There's just like a lot that comes off the back of SIBO. Good stuff. I am so glad we're having this conversation right now. (laughs) It's going to be so helpful. Hydration is one of the most important aspects of living a healthy lifestyle and waking up each day feeling your best. Whether you're getting in your morning workout, hiking in hot temperatures, or struggle with headaches, muscle cramps, or fatigue, electrolytes are critical. Drink Element replaces these essential electrolytes without the sugar, artificial ingredients, coloring, and other junk ingredients found in popular electrolyte drinks on the market today. Element was developed by Rob Wolf, a former research biochemist and two-time New York Times bestselling author, and his coaches, Tyler and Luis, because they were frustrated with the lack of healthy electrolyte options on the market. 
The customers include three Navy SEAL teams as prescribed by their master chief, Team USA Weightlifting, and dozens of NFL and NBA teams. As a member of our community, Element has a very special offer for you. You can claim your free Element sample pack. You only cover the cost of shipping. Just go to drinkelement.com slash artofbeingwell. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash artofbeingwell. It's our go-to electrolyte. Check it out. Every day, there's a new wellness trend, right? I mean, it's eat this, don't eat that. Do this, don't do that. Avoid those, have those. I mean, Dr. Google can be a very fickle physician sometimes on what the heck you should do when it comes to your health. Oh my gosh, it's so confusing sometimes for people. I get it. It's overwhelming sometimes. How do you know where to start? Who you should trust? Inside Tracker cuts through the noise by analyzing your blood, your DNA, your lifestyle, and fitness trackers to provide you a personalized, science-backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. As a functional medicine practitioner, I realize not everybody needs a functional medicine practitioner at this point in their health journey. That's where Inside Tracker comes in. It is a simpler and more convenient way than traditional blood tests. And they provide you amazing information about your health and wellness. Their blood test includes biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from traditional blood tests like ferritin, vitamin D, so many more biomarkers. My favorite part is that they don't just give you data. They provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. For a limited time, Inside Tracker is offering my listeners 25% off their entire store. Just go to insidetracker.com slash art of being well. Change is an inside job, my friends. Start inside. Hi, I'm Shanae Alexander, host of Press Send, a podcast and more importantly, a safe and hilarious place for candid conversations about the scary, funny, heartbreaking but always intriguing questions that make us all human. Each week, me and a new best friend you haven't met yet field your questions across any and all topics and offer our take on the matter with plenty of humor, heart, and badassery along the way. We launch a new episode of Press Send every Wednesday. We'll see you there. So labs, we run labs for people with SIBO. And like you said, it's so interconnected. So you have to look at things beyond SIBO too. People aren't just their SIBO. But let's talk about SIBO specifically. What are some of the labs that people should, should know about? Yeah. So the main way to diagnose SIBO is through a breath test. Um, I'd never taken a breath test before, before this experience, but you end up feeling a little bit like a mad scientist. So it's a, it's kind of a labor intensive test. You have to have a very limited diet the day before you take it. So only lean meats and white rice. And the reason for that is you're trying to, you know, similar to kind of like prepping for a colonoscopy without like the crazy, like without the, the crazy laxatives, but you're trying to like clear away, um, any sort of fiber debris in the intestinal canal that might mess up the test. So then you fast for 12 hours before and you drink this sugar solution. And there are a few different types that you can choose from. Your doctor will choose whichever one their favorite is. I'm curious what your favorite is. Um, <laughs> which is it? Which Lactulose. is it? Yeah, Lactulose. Yeah. That's what most people use. So yeah. that's, um, 
is it a synthetic sugar solution or just yes. like a laboratory derived? Okay. Exactly. Same thing. So you drink the sugar solution and then you blow into tubes at like 15 or 20 minute intervals. And the concept is that as the sugar moves through your small intestines, if there are any gas byproducts, so methane or hydrogen, that means that there are critters existing at that point in your canal. So it's an imperfect science. There's differentiation in terms of the criteria between labs. And then, you know, there's also some argument that, well, you know, the sugar solution will like speed up your motility. So like maybe sometimes like what you're reading is what happens in the large intestine. But I think in like the roundup of data, it's pretty clear that people who have a positive SIBO test and also who get treated for it, like get better. So whether or not you call it SIBO or whatever you want to call it, like there's an issue there and it can be treated. Mm-hmm. Well said. And for people that are listening that are more savvy or maybe have had different labs run, something that I, I like to differentiate is that when you get a stool test, even like a functional medicine stool test or even yeah. a conventional stool test, that's going to show you largely what's in the large intestine. And yeah. it may be somewhat from the small intestine, but it's not locational. We don't know the specific location of it. So all SIBO is a form of dysbiosis, but not all dysbiosis is SIBO. Not all overgrowth is necessarily specifically in yes. the small intestine. Yeah. Yes. I get people write me all the time with like my stool test, stool test said I have SIBO and I'm like, oh. Well, yeah, yeah. It, no. yeah, may or may not be. Yeah, may, may, may. yeah, exactly. So you talked about this two different types of SIBO uh, that we find out on test, hydrogen and methane dominant. Can we talk about the difference between the two? Do they have different symptoms? Like what's their hallmark things or are they pretty much the same just through different metrics? Yeah. So methane is pr- pretty different. And the reason why breath testing, even though it is imperfect, is so important is that you have to figure out which is your dominant type in order to figure out how to treat it. So methane kind of requires an extra agent, depending on whether you're doing herbs or antibiotics, a second antibiotic, second herb. And yeah, it tends to be the trickier to eradicate. And it's the one that is going to point you towards weight gain and constipation um, because of the nature of those gases. And again, like the way that methanogens, which like aren't technically bacteria, they're archaea, the way they metabolize energy in your food. So that one, I mean, uh, I feel sorry for the methane folks because it is, it is a bit tougher, but you know, there's hope for, for that as well. And they're saying now, I guess the more recent research is that the methane overgrowth is maybe not necessarily just in the small intestine, but can be in the large intestine as well. Okay. Well said. So the healing journey obviously everybody's at different points of them healing their guts or overcoming SIBO or other forms of dysbiosis in their gut. How long have you found through your experience of your own journey, but also talking to so many people? I mean, you are the SIBO queen now, whether you like it or not, (laughs) you like it or not, you are. Uh, What are you seeing on the field just anecdotally with people's journey? What does it look like? I mean, I say in the book and this like, isn't to be a Debbie Downer, but like you should like plan to like take a full year to heal. Cause for me, like my, my experience was pretty clear cut and straightforward compared to a lot of people with like recurrent chronic SIBO. I had the hydrogen type. My numbers like weren't crazy. I did one round of, you know, a compound herbal protocol, the biotics protocol and 
took another test and it was gone. But I didn't feel better at the end of that course. Like I really had to work for a while to kind of rebuild my gut. And I did kind of a low FODMAP diet, um, like a wonky low FODMAP diet with, you know, eating some high FODMAPs foods occasionally while on the herbs, just to make sure that the bacteria were, were happy and active so they could be killed. And, um, yeah, coming off of that diet, like I had to do it very slowly and, I think it's just because, I mean, whenever you do any sort of elimination diet, I do think that there is an adjustment period. Um, Mm -hmm. But I really noticed that just the diet alone reduced my symptoms. Um, Mm -hmm. The medication I could tell like were causing other symptoms, but in terms of die off, which is something that a lot of people have to battle. But then, yeah, I think it was just like a slow and steady process of reintroduction and then getting back on like the probiotic train and the fermented foods train, again, trying to, you know, live (laughs) the gut microbiome specialist, you know, best practices that couldn't happen overnight. As soon as I got a negative test, like it really happened slowly over time. Like I, I don't even drink that much kombucha anymore, but I think I was starting with like, like a sip, like yeah. maybe like a shot glass. Simple, full. Yeah. Like, and I still don't really drink like a full bottle of it. It just mm-hmm. doesn't agree with me, but that's enough. Kombucha is a whole nother conversation. Um, <laughs> yeah. but I would say to people, like there's also, unfortunately, especially with the diet element, because like your symptoms are very much tied to when you eat. And I also think that's worth pointing out to people is that if you have IBS versus SIBO, kind of one of the telltale signs is just the frequency. Like if you're having symptoms, you know, every few days, you don't really know why that might be more because of a food sensitivity. But if like literally every time you eat, you get that bloat, you get like the burping, the mm-hmm. farting, whatever, that's kind of more SIBO-y. <laughs> yeah. So I like that SIBO-y. <laughs> yeah. But that, so then I think there was like a lot of mindset work that had to go into it. And luckily I never kind of whittled my diet down to five foods as a lot of SIBO people do, but you know, there was still some food fear on the other end of it and trying to reintroduce. And I did have symptoms and that's okay. I kind of, the best piece of advice from a low FODMAP RD who I interviewed was that, you know, if you have a little bit of gas and bloating, during your reintroduction, that is not a failed test. That's just, again, your body readjusting. So you have to kind of plow through. And for me, like that whole year was like, it was me plowing through until eventually I could just not think about things anymore. But I'll also say like the low FODMAP diet, I think properly applied is so interesting because it's not really, it's not an allergen elimination diet. You're not allergic to FODMAPs through and everything, but mm-hmm. you could be sensitive to certain types, but more importantly, it's really like, it's a quantity game. So mm-hmm. it's really kind of figuring out what your threshold is. And that's like a moving target. That's something that changes over time. So for me now it's, it's changed the way that I approach even just like designing my recipes, making my meals. I don't do just like a giant side of Brussels sprouts anymore. I'll do like a mixture of Brussels sprouts and other things, or I'll make Mm -hmm. a stew that has like a handful of broccoli and Brussels sprouts, you know, just like mixing it up and using a lot of frozen vegetables so that you can siphon off smaller quantities. Yeah. It's just, and I think with that as a tip, like my plate actually has become more diverse on the other side of it because I'm eating more different types of plants in one meal. I love that. So we'll, we'll talk about the food and we'll define FODMAPs and all that for people that are like, what's FODMAPs? We'll get there. We'll get there. But I want to talk about something you touched on is the natural um, antimicrobial the protocol. Yeah. yeah. So 
normally a, a more conventional approach is typically a pharmaceutical antibiotic. Uh, and then of course there's natural antimicrobials. There are different protocols that we can use in functional medicine and conventional medicine too. But conventional medicine would be different forms of antibiotics. But tell me about this, like why through your research, uh, what made you go the herbal route versus the pharmaceutical route? And what was your experience with that? Yeah. I mean, I did it because I listened to my doctor, didn't try and go it alone. And that was what he recommended because he's more holistically minded as well. And I was on them for four weeks, which is, you know, it's a bit longer protocol than the antibiotics. The antibiotics are typically two weeks. There are people who, you know, will naturally gravitate to what is quote unquote more natural, but I will say like, you know, the herbs are not innocuous. They're not always gentle. And especially the compound protocol that I was on has a lot of antifungals in it too, which is good if you like suspect that there's mm -hmm. potentially yeast overgrowth too. And there's, I don't know, it said that 50% of all SIBO cases also have a yeast overgrowth because again, like kind of the mechanics of what happens with SIBO can cause anything to overgrow. But I had a, you know, I had a fairly, you know, pleasant or <laughs> successful experience with yeah. them. So it's not like I wouldn't recommend them. But I also know people who have done the rifaximin and had like, you know, one and done, like easy experience with that too. Yeah. Um, I think there are like really pros and cons to every approach. And it just depends on your lifestyle. Like rifaximin, if you don't have insurance, is like outrageously expensive. And, you know, it may be that insurance like won't cover a second round. And right. for most people who have very high numbers, like you're probably going to have to use several rounds of whatever you decide. So mm -hmm. it's maybe worth just having all of these things like in your toolkit just to rotate. So yeah. maybe it's one round of refaxman for you. And then maybe you try herbs. <laughs> what makes SIBO complicated and that simple is that, you know, there is no one path to to fixing it. And mm -hmm. you kind of, it's also why it's so important, I think, to work with a practitioner who really knows what they're doing, because, you know, you do have to kind of really look at the individual case. Absolutely. Very well said. And that's definitely true. I think these are multifactorial. They need to be explored on an individual basis. I have had great success over the past decade dealing with SIBO cases with natural antimicrobials. But you, like yeah. you said, it's, it's full spectrum. It's multifactorial. It's a lot of things. Uh, and they typically do take longer. But look, I mean, there's a, the statistics and maybe you know the numbers. I don't know them offhand. But the rate of people that do the pharmaceutical route that need more than one round and the reoccurrent, re, yeah. uh, like triggering the flare-ups that come back. Tell us about that. Like, it's just not always one round and you're solved. It works for some people, like you said, that get lucky, but that's not many people with SIBO. Yeah. So especially if you have methane, so the Zyfaxin rifaximin is thought to be a eubiotic. So it actually stays in the small intestine and it doesn't kind of kill indiscriminately. But if you have methane SIBO, you need a second agent, as we talked about before. And the two that are kind of the most used for methane SIBO on the antibiotic front are the bad kinds of antibiotics that really like will wipe you out across the board. So that's really not something you necessarily want to be doing multiple rounds of, in my opinion. But there's Allison garlic, which is a great agent for methane. If you're going the natural route, it's, well, we'll talk about FODMAPs in a bit, but garlic is one of the big no-nos in the FODMAP family, but this is a derivative garlic that's really just like the antimicrobial elements and not something that's going to actually give you symptoms. But one aspect of SIBO we didn't talk about is hydrogen sulfide SIBO, which is the third type that they just recently came out with a test for. So for a while, you couldn't test for it. You just had to kind of go off of symptoms. But since garlic is sulfurous for hydrogen sulfide SIBO, that would not be a choice because you'll probably react to it. 
Yeah, well said. So something that we you touched on that I, I think is worth discussing a little bit about is the connection with histamine intolerance and SIBO, yeah. something that I see clinically a lot. And I think a lot of people don't know about it. So let's talk about it. Yeah. So I'm probably going to butcher this since I am not a practitioner, but basically if you have, you know, this overgrowth of bacteria, you're not going to be able to produce DAO, which is what helps to break down histamine in the body. So histamine is a totally natural ingredient of our bodies. And the problem is again, which is with quantity. So if you have too much in in circulation, it can cause things to go haywire. And you can have a lot of the symptoms that you're used to just with seasonal allergies, but then also a lot of symptoms that are connected to other areas of the body where histamine are used. So in your menstrual cycle, in your gut, these are all places, you know, that histamine comes into play. So bacteria can produce their own histamine. So if you've got added bacteria in your small intestine, you're already going to have a higher level of histamine. And then it's going to prevent you from producing what you need to break down that histamine. So then again, the level kind of raises even higher. And then I would say like the low FODMAP diet comes into play because a lot of low FODMAP foods, when you're taking, you know, cutting your vegetable ingredient list in half, you're actually focusing on a lot of high histamine foods. So there's natural histamine in the foods we eat every single day. It's usually not a problem, but you know, if you really have a diet that's focused on certain ingredients and, you know, foods that are older, that are canned or cured meats. These are things that are going to have higher levels of histamine. So if you're just bringing a lot of histamine into the plant at all times and you have higher levels to begin with and not enough of this enzyme to break it down, then yeah, you may end up having histamine dysfunction of some sort. Got it. Yeah. Uh, and there are certain gene variants that we can look at too. And it's this interesting interplay of looking at methylation gene variants and what's going on in the microbiome and brings us back to that sort of larger autoimmune component that yeah. is a factor for some people with with SIBO, but SIBO is so, it's a spectrum too, uh, for sure. Yeah. Um, so Let's talk about FODMAP diet, which is acronym, this funny sounding acronym yeah. we've been saying, referring to, and many people know about it, but for people that don't, what the heck is FODMAP? And, I know, what the heck? Yeah. Um, well, it's an acronym. It stands for various carbohydrates that are found in plants naturally. And um, again, they're kind of tend to be the carbohydrates that react most with gut bacteria. Um, and, you know, are a lot of times like, a really good thing in terms of your large intestine. And the studies show that if you stay in a low FODMAP diet for too long, for over two months, like you really do end up damaging the balance of bacteria in your large intestine because you're taking away their primary foods. So there are different schools of thought in terms of how the low FODMAP diet factors into SIBO treatment. It is definitely not something that you need across the board. I personally, like given the overlap of people with autoimmune issues and SIBO, I think it's more important to eliminate allergens first, like the big guns, like dairy, gluten, soy, corn. So that's why all the recipes in my book eliminate those things anyway, with an exception for like ghee and some fermented dairy. But, you know, some people think of it as, you know, we're going to be starving the bugs, you know, trying to get them to migrate to large intestine or die off. It hasn't really proven that you can use just the low FADMAP diet to do that, but it certainly can help with symptoms, which I think is the biggest efficacy in terms of SIBO and IBS is just mm -hmm. getting those gases down so that you're not so reactive. And that in and of itself will kind of allow the immune system to be called off to a certain extent and for some of that leaky gut to heal and just, mm -hmm. just, just for things to calm down. 
Love that. So what Phoebe is saying is that she and many people that have SIBO and some, a tool that we use in functional medicine is we bring these antimicrobials in, we bring in these other agents that uh, support a healthy microbiome and decrease that overgrowth, kill off some of that overgrowth. And then this larger journey of, well, simultaneously working on the antimicrobial stuff is supporting healthy microbiome yeah. diversity, but also not feeding that bacterial overgrowth. Yeah. So SIBO Made Simple, this is a great resource for all the information they need to know about SIBO, because that's what the front half of the book is wonderfully put together. So you can really oh, you. break down all this stuff. You have amazing resources and protocols and all of that stuff. But the second half of the book are these really pretty pictures and amazing recipes. <laughs> so I want to talk about that stuff. And something that else that Phoebe said that I want to just reiterate is that her and many other people's journey of reintroduction can be slow. It can be arduous. It's not linear. Uh, that's okay. And that's what this, a resource like this is really helping people to work through. Taking time to heal your gut at least a year. But honestly, I have many patients that takes a year and a half, two oh, years yeah. through reintroduction. That's okay. It's not a failure. Uh, and I think this is a good roadmap for people. But tell me about the recipes before, uh, I, I could keep lathering on about this, but I, tell me about <laughs> the recipes. I love the codes of them. Can we talk about that? Yeah. So, Okay. So the recipes, again, take out a lot of the big allergens, but then they're also, there's also a very robust dietary restriction key, which literally drove me crazy to make. And I'm sure there are mistakes in there, but it's, it was no. the best I could do as a non-RD. And I coded for low histamine, for low sulfur, since again, people with that hydrogen sulfide SIBO will want to eat low sulfur. And then for some of the existing practitioner diets for SIBO. So there are a lot of people who go the Allison Seebecker route. She's got the SIBO specific food guide. And then Dr. Narella Jacoby has kind of her iteration of that diet, which is called the biphasic diet. And those two approaches kind of marry SCD and low FODMAP. So taking out kind of a lot of what we traditionally think of as carbs. So like simple carbs, like white rice and potatoes and starchy vegetables and overlap that with low FODMAP, which is very restrictive and not necessary for everyone. But I wanted to at least code all the recipes for those people who are doing those specific diets who really, you know, wanted a more concrete roadmap. I, I love that. And the, yeah, the, the technician in me, like the, the, the great, <laughs> I love the codes, but I, at the same time, my heart went out to you because coding all of these things. Oh my God. And then I can't believe they managed to like actually design it in a way where it fit on the page because like every recipe I had to like cut some of the like substitutions. Cause for some of them, I'll just offer you a substitution. Like, you know, if you're low histamine, just like take out the tomatoes or the spinach or what have you. But yeah, it was, it was a lot to juggle. Oh yeah. And there's also, code for, for candida and yeast and low sugar, um, or sugar-free. So yeah, a lot of those SIBO overlapping issues, you know, I really wanted to make sure that you were able to navigate the book. And, mm -hmm. and I know it's so frustrating to pick up a cookbook and be like, I can't eat half of these recipes, but you know, at the very least you'll be able to easily find the half that you can eat. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, no, I mean, there's, like you said, there's low FODMAP, SCD, there's specific carbohydrate diet. There's so many. I mean, literally, she mentioned most of them, but there's probably yeah. 11, And vegetarian. 12. They're coded yeah. for vegetarian as well. Perfect. Let's talk about that. I think yeah. something that you touched on earlier and in the conversation, everything we hear from microbiome researchers is 
plant diversity, the more different types of plants that you eat, the more diverse your microbiome, the more robust your health is. That's the antithesis of something that's going to make someone with SIBO or dysbiosis feel. They're going to feel horrible doing that. So what's that about? How did you uh, reconcile that? So, I mean, I really, both for like pleasure's sake and for, again, like thinking about you know, the overall balance of your microbiome, I really wanted to have like robust plant-focused recipes and to have kind of that diversity built in. So not just taking, because I think for me, without having a book at hand, I was taking a lot of the medium FODMAP foods like and vegetables off of my shopping list. Cause I just, I didn't want to have to measure them. I just didn't want to have to deal with that kind of like chopped mystery box. Cause again, it's all about quantities with low FODMAP. So like broccoli, sweet potato, fennel, avocado, these are things that you can have little bits of, but not a huge amount. Like it's like an eighth of an avocado, like <laughs> kill me now. Uh, um, but you know, you can put that in a sauce and I've measured out for you. So if you like, follow the actual serving size of the recipe, you know, split it four ways, you'll be fine. Um, and in certain cases I did give a suggestion on like what a safe low FODMAP serving size was, but yeah, so I, my background is not, I'm not a doctor. I'm not an RD. I'm a chef. So I really, you know, struggle in general in my own experiences with having to do these restrictive diets and not really being able to like find pleasure in the way I used to in my cooking and my meals. And um, the reality is like, even with low FODMAP, you can eat some pretty incredible diverse things. I really yeah. tried to borrow from a lot of different cultures. And especially since you can't really get takeout if you're not eating garlic and onion or can't really order at most restaurants, I tried to like incorporate just a lot of cuisines from around the world, um, mm-hmm. which also a lot of them have kind of like built-in anti-inflammatory spices and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I really do think that if you're feeling frustrated with your diet, it can be like a hopeful book to turn to. And I also think like for a lot of people, it's not necessarily the ingredients that are bothering them. It's how they're prepared. So we talked about this. I remember in your episode of my podcast, which is that, you know, if you have a really damaged gut, like puree your foods, cook. Well, first of all, cook them to begin with, then puree them even further if you need more help. But, you know, don't be put off if you eat a kale salad and you say this is low FODMAP and you react to it. It's not the kale necessarily. It's just that you're not ready for a woody dense kale salad. Uh, this is golden. I've said, so thank you for clarifying that. So what, what I was trying to say earlier is that all the, the high FODMAP vegetables or a lot of raw stuff isn't going to work necessarily for somebody earlier on in their SIBO yeah. journey. But what you have done in this book that I really love, because I like being more plant-centered too, and this is quite a plant-forward yeah. book. I say that, 60% plant-based or it can be adapted to be so. Which is, that's a big thing. I mean, in the SIBO community, they think I can't have plants, right? It's like, yeah. I I can't do it. But the reality is you can, and you really totally. taught us how to do that throughout the book. Yeah. I mean, I have a soup that's like the kitchen sink crucifer soup. And like, it includes a lot of ingredients that are again, in like kind of the medium FODMAP territory, like broccoli, cabbage, and, you know, it gives you kind of, you can pick and choose which combinations you use, but you know, those are kind of more difficult ingredients for people, like in certainly in their raw form. But, you know, if you cook them down and puree them into a soup, that's like the easiest way for you to assimilate those things. And you'll at least allow yourself to keep a little diversity in your diet if you do so. 
I love that. So you don't have to be a full on carnivore to. Uh, you, no, that's. But it is harder, and so yeah, that's also why I wanted to focus on the plant based stuff because I think for SIBO people, you know, when you look at the list of low FODMAP, you're like, okay, so like I can have chicken and steamed spinach, and I'm good. <laughs> um, but no, you can have a lot more than that. Definitely. And if you had to pick out of the recipes, like what are some of your favorite in the book? I keep getting asked that. So I like really need to find my back pocket answer. Um, So I just actually posted a sneak peek on my site of this butterless butter chicken recipe, mild and creamy butterless butter chicken. It's obviously not truly authentic to Indian cuisine. There's like no heat in it um, in terms of like jalapeno or, you know, hot spices, but it's so, so good. I replaced the heavy cream with just one cup from like the thicker part the can of coconut milk, which is a low FODMAP serving and use ghee instead of butter. And like, there's a lot of it. It's very rich and creamy. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, I think ghee is a wonderful healthy fat for gut healing. So something like mm-hmm. that, which really also just like feels like indulgent, like something you might get in a takeout container. I love, let's see. So there's this green detox soup, which is my mom's, like, this is what my mom has been making since like as long as I can remember. And I always found it absolutely disgusting. Like it would just be this like crusty green, like court container in the fridge at all times. <laughs> and then I, I don't remember when it was in adulthood that I finally tried it, but I was like, oh my God, this is actually delicious. But it's so simple. It's just zucchini, like one bunch of chard and an entire bunch of cilantro in chicken broth or vegetable broth, you puree it. And it's so great because, you know, I think cilantro is one of the most amazing chelating agents. And yeah, if you get the whole bunch with the stems and all, like you're going to get a lot in there. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's a fun recipe. I don't know. It's so funny. It's like I tested these to death. So I kind of like OD'd on a lot of them. (laughs) And now I'm just starting to like get back into like the rotation of these recipes and start cooking them for like myself and my husband again. And it's really fun. This is like you said, before we started recording this, is without a doubt the prettiest SIBO book that there is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and like you also said, there's not a lot of SIBO resources anyway. So it's yeah. it's it's the most informative and the prettiest. Ooh, so, okay. I'll give you another one that I just flipped to. Okay. Hear me out. Turmeric dill catfish. This is a dish that I'm like a big traveler. This is a dish I had in Vietnam and it's so good. It uses obviously the turmeric. It creates this beautiful yellow marinade with the catfish and then dill. I don't know. I feel like it's such an underused herb. And then you just make a sheet pan meal out of it, put it on top of bok choy and just like stick it in the oven for 10 minutes. It's so quick and easy, sounds but amazing. like really exciting. That sounds uh, freaking amazing. Uh, you have a section in the recipe portion of the book in chapter five, you mentioned the careful carbs. Yes. So tell, <laughs> tell me about the careful carbs. I like that. So because a lot of people will kind of use SCD, which is um, the specific carbohydrate diet layered in with low FODMAP, or just in general, maybe point people towards more of a low carb paleo approach. And I know people are worried about yeast may also take that approach. I just wanted to put like a lot of the carb heavy recipes in one place. I'm not personally low carb or advocate for that. So I, you know, still ate white and brown rice and quinoa like throughout my my SIBO healing, it was fine. Maybe less quinoa. Quinoa and I don't agree so much anymore, but um, I don't know. I, I just wanted to put it in one chapter for people to 
to be able to, to at least come to even, you know, yeah. when they're expanding their diet a little bit mm-hmm. more, because I do think that carbs totally have a place in a healthy diet. Yeah. And yeah. And I mean, I just, I'm a, I'm a carbo, carbivore. I love, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's good. We're at, like when we're whenever that reintroduction process looks like, if you want to experiment with it at different yeah. places, I think it's a great section of different clean carb, safe carbs. Yeah, all different like wild rice, spaghetti, squash, um, you know, mashed potatoes with the skin on to get a little fiber in there. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, the spinach ghee mashed potatoes are also really simple and really mm. good. Sounds amazing. Do you use, uh, and maybe tell people about that, the um, university FODMAP app. I mean, for, you yeah. take the guesswork out of it, but that's a resource for many people in the community. Totally. I use that app like to design the whole cookbook. I had, I mean, I still, it's a horribly complicated (laughs) diet. I have to check things all the time still. I don't have it all just committed to memory. And, you know, there's some weird ingredients that pop up. I'm like, "Hmm, what is like the FODMAP content of that? So it's called the FODMAP app, but it's designed by Monash University in Australia, who are like the founders of the low FODMAP diet. And they have an incredible research institute. They're constantly kind of looking at new ingredients that they haven't necessarily like studied or evaluated for their FODMAP content and adding things to the database. So it's a cool thing on your phone. If you're not sure, you know, what quantity you need for something, or if something's low FODMAP, you can just look it up and it tells you both like the low FODMAP quantity, the medium FODMAP quantity, and then kind of like the red, don't go near like a full cup of this quantity. (laughs) Run away from it. Uh, So another section that I love in the book, it's the SIBO Amigo Digest, the 10 (laughs) cooking rules of thumb. I, I, you don't. Have to, you can get the book to read all of them, but what are some of the things that you you mentioned there? Um, I honestly don't remember, but I'll just give you some of my cooking yeah. rules of thumb. Um, I can so, read them to you, and you can talk about it. But oh yeah. yeah, sure. I think it's use your spice rack. I think is one of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, pretty much all spices that don't have garlic or onion powder in them will be low FODMAP. And Mm -hmm. that's just an incredible way to add, again, like diversity to your food. So even if you are someone who needs to stick to the same five ingredients, like Mm -hmm. you can create so many different dishes just by using your spice rack. Mm -hmm. Um, Did I put bacon makes everything better at that? (laughs) No, No, but that's a good one. That's a good (laughs) one. Tell me about that one. (laughs) You have to have a little bit of fun. Whenever you're restricting, I always think you have to like find little ways to indulge. Um, I think that's one of the tips on my site when I have a post about low FODMAP cooking. But yeah, if you find, you know, organic, nitrate-free, sugar-free bacon, there's a lot of paleo brands now. Like, you know what? I wouldn't, again, I'm not part of the the keto, low FODMAP side of things that's just like pushing large amounts of animal protein, but Mm -hmm. a little bit of bacon can make everything better. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. I mean, you give your chef wisdom in there. I guess that's my point. You really marry these two worlds where it can be kind of overwhelming or it looks really punitive and arduous, like, oh, dogmatic, but you bring this beauty and fun and like, you've got this energy throughout this book that I really appreciate. And I know people in the community that are healing from this will appreciate too. Okay. I'll just, now that I've flipped to the right page, (laughs) number 10 is put on your hosting hat and bring the party to you. And I'll just say that I tested so many of these recipes back in the before times, the pre-COVID times, like 
with dinner parties and people had no idea, no idea that they didn't have garlic or onion in them. I would actually quiz them. I'm like, what's different about this meal? (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, it's really delicious food. And I also think, you know, since eating out and ordering in can be so much harder on these restrictive diets, like there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't bring the party to you and like find ways to socialize where you're in full control if you need to be. I love that. So you also, for people that are wondering about the reintroduction in the book, Phoebe breaks down what a sample FODMAP reintroduction chart looks like. She talks about histamine. I mean, so all of this stuff of how do I get from this way of eating to this way of eating as you heal your gut, it's all there. I mean, you are brilliant. I can't imagine how much work this took you. It was a lot of work. Oh, I'll also say, so one of my favorite elements of that, and I had to like kind of argue, not argue with my editor, but we had a back and forth about this, but I felt very strongly. So Every ep- every every episode, every recipe has a section called onwards, and there's a suggestion of one high FODMAP food, or maybe it's a food that you just like, like cheese. I don't really have cheese in the book, but even though some of it's low FODMAP, but it's just giving you small ways to add an extra ingredient into the recipe to make the reintroduction easier. So, like if you're reintroducing like celery on a particular day, if you can you can flip through the book and find there are a few recipes with the onwards section of like just add you know one celery stock to this recipe. So cool. You obviously covered this within the book and throughout the book. And the show, I I call the show The Art of Being Well. And this book is definitely a major tool for people to start learning how to feel well again and start feeling well. What's something that you wish you knew years ago or right when the beginning of your SIBO journey that you know now that you wish you knew then about the art of being well? Yeah. So I think one of them that's like specific to SIBO, like I really didn't know about the migrating motor complex or how it works, Mm -hmm. but, um, knowing that it takes a fasting state of 90 minutes or more for it to kick into gear, kind of reframe the whole way that I view my meals. I was always someone who kind of advocated for like eating three or two big meals a day and like not snacking so much in between, but understanding that even if I'm like having a healthy snack and like taking like a little handful of almonds every like 10 minutes, I'm really preventing the mechanics of my digestion from kicking into gear the way it's designed to be. That was like a big aha moment for me. Mm -hmm. And again, it's like, I kind of think even though it's a recipe book, like how you eat is more important than what you eat. Mm. And all of these small little habits that we forget about when we get, you know, bogged down by wanting to reach for a supplement or a different diet to like try and control, control, control. In reality, there are like some really, there's some smaller tweaks you can make that can really just like set you off on a better foot with your digestion. Well said. My friend, thank you so much for oh, taking the time out and talking with me. Thank you. This was so me. fun. I, know, <laughs> I love nerding out on SIBO. <laughs> me too. Thank you. What a wealth of information. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you want to learn more about Phoebe Lapine, you can check her out on her website at feedmephoebe.com. And of course, check out her amazing book, SIBO Made Simple. I wrote the foreword. It's an amazing wealth of information. Check it out. You can get it anywhere books are sold. At the end of every episode, I'll be answering a question from one of you guys. Nothing is off limits. Ask me anything. And you can send your questions over to me on Instagram or Facebook. 
As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies, wellness trends, and ways to approach overall mental, emotional, and physical health and well-being. Thanks for those. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else is on your mind. All right, now it's time for another Ask Me Anything. Today's question is from Amanda. She said, hi, Dr. Cole. What are the best supplements that you recommend for acne breakouts? Great question, Amanda. So skin issues are one of my top things that I see clinically. And oftentimes, as I mentioned at the top of the show, there's a lot of underlying root commonalities to these issues. These are oftentimes all chronic inflammatory, and there's oftentimes hormonal gut components or both hormonal and gut components to the skin flare-ups, whether that be acne or rosacea or eczema or psoriasis anything. The skin is oftentimes an outer reflection of what's going on in the body. And in many cases, not all cases, the skin and what's going on with the skin as far as flare-ups or uh, rashes or uh, breakouts, they are an outer representation specifically of what's going on on the gut lining. So we have what's called the gut-skin axis. So the connection between our gut health and our skin health and the microbiome of both. We have bacterial uh, balances both in the gut and on our skin. So both the skin microbiome and the gut microbiome are inextricably linked as well. And so we have to look at these far-reaching implications of things beyond the surface. And the skin is sort of that check engine light of what's going on underneath the hood on a proverbial level. So we have to look at hormones in detail, looking at estrogen, looking at progesterone, looking at cortisol, testosterone levels, looking at DHEA, looking at androgens uh, and seeing where those balances are, looking at inflammation markers, looking at what could be driving that inflammation, and then these gut-centric components to many people's skin issues. So looking at bacterial overgrowth, things like SIBO, interestingly enough, can be associated with different skin breakouts. I didn't plan that when putting that question question with today's episode, but it definitely it could be true. Other bacterial overgrowths, uh, inflammation in the gut, we measure uh, inflammatory markers in the gut. The point is what I'm trying to say, and I didn't even mention nutrient deficiencies. So nutrient deficiencies is a whole different other thing. My point being is it's a perfect storm of variables. So Amanda, for me to say the best supplements, it depends on what the underlying cause is. So that this magic pill that's going to cure everybody's skin issues is very reductionist and broad sweeping, and I don't wanna make that statement. The point is, let's find out what's the underlying factor for you. Now, with that said, can I give some good guidance on things to consider? Absolutely. If it's a hormonal acne, N-acetylcysteine or NAC can be a good consideration. It's a powerful antioxidant that can help with oxidative stress and could be play a role in decreasing uh, hormonal driven acne. Uh, another one would be DIM is another compound that's found in cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts. But DIM can help to metabolize excess estrogen if you're struggling with estrogen dominance uh, and other hormonal imbalances as well. And then if it's not hormonal, if it's just inflammatory acne, we have to look at gut health. We can look at nutrient deficiencies like vitamin D, which is responsible for skin health as well. Omega-3s, these healthy fats can be quite beneficial. If it's a bacterial issue, looking at gut health as well, looking at maybe supporting your gut health with probiotics, different probiotic strains can be beneficial to supporting the gut-skin axis. 
nutrients like zinc as well. And then some people's acne are driven by stress. Uh, so we have to look at maybe things like adaptogens like ashwagandha can be supportive of balancing stress levels to help with stress-related breakouts if it's around a stressful time of your life. Uh, things like magnesium can help to lower stress levels and to balance blood sugar, which can impact breakouts as well. So it depends on what the underlying cause is. I wrote an article on drwillcool.com with all the links to all the PubMed studies if you want to get super sciencey with me and for all the detailed information about these things. It's at drwillcool.com. Thanks so much for the question, Amanda. That's it for today. Thanks again for hanging out with me. I would love to know what you think about the art of being well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back again next Thursday. And I hope you will too. Talk soon.